Chapter Six, Part One of Royal Highness by Thomas Mann, translated by A. Cecil Curtis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayat. Chapter Six: The Lofty Calling. Here follows a description of Klaus Heinrich's mode of life and profession and their peculiarities. On a typical occasion, he stepped out of his carriage, walked with cloak thrown back down a short passage through cheering crowds over a pavement which was covered with red carpet through a laurel-decked house door over which an awning had been erected up a staircase flanked by pairs of candle-bearing footmen he was on his way to a festival dinner covered to his hips with orders the fringed epaulets of a major on his narrow shoulders and was followed by his suite along the gothic corridor of the town hall two servants hurried in front of him and quickly opened an old window which rattled in its lead fastenings for down below in the market-place stood the people wedged together head to head an oblique track of upturned faces dimly illuminated by smoky torchlight they cheered and sang and he stood at the open window and bowed displayed himself to the general enthusiasm for a while and nodded his thanks there was nothing really every day nor was there anything really actual about his life it consisted of a succession of moments of enthusiasm wherever he went there was holiday there the people were transfigured and glorified there the gray workaday world cleared up and became poetry the starveling became a sleek man the hovel a homely cottage dirty gutter children changed into chaste little maidens and boys in sunday clothes their hair plastered with water a poem on their lips and the perspiring citizen in frock-coat and top-hat was moved to emotion by the consciousness of his own worth but not only he klaus heinrich saw the world in this light but it saw itself too as long as his presence lasted a strange unreality and speciousness prevailed in places where he exercised his calling a symmetrical transitory window-dressing an artificial and inspiring disguising of the reality by pasteboard and gilded wood by garlands lamps draperies and bunting was conjured up for one fair hour and he himself stood in the centre of the show on a carpet which covered the bare ground between masts painted in two colors round which garlands twined stood with heels together in the odor of varnish and fir branches and smiled with his left hand planted on his hip he laid the foundation stone of a new town hall the citizens had after juggling with the figures got together the necessary sum and a learned architect from the capital had been entrusted with the building but klaus heinrich undertook the laying of the foundation stone amid the cheers of the population he drove up to the noble pavilion which had been built on the site stepped lightly and collectedly out of the open carriage on to the ground which had been rolled and sprinkled with yellow sand and walked all alone towards the official personages in frock-coats and white ties who were waiting for him at the entrance he asked for the architect to be presented to him and in full view of the public and with the officials standing with fixed smiles round him he conducted a conversation with him for five full minutes 
a conversation of weighty commonplaces about the advantages of the different styles of architecture, after which he made a decided movement, which he had meditated to himself beforehand during the conversation, and allowed himself to be conducted over the carpet and plank steps to his seat on the edge of the middle platform. There, in his chain and stars, one foot advanced, his white-gloved hands crossed on his sword-hilt, his helmet on the ground beside him, visible to the holiday crowd on every side, he sat and listened with calm demeanour to the Lord Mayor's speech. Thereupon, when they came to the request, he rose, walked, without noticeable precaution and without looking at his feet, down the steps to where the foundation stone lay, and with a little hammer gave three slow taps to the block of sandstone, at the same time repeating in the deep hush, with his rather sharp voice, a sentence which Herr von Knobelsdorff had previously impressed upon him. Schoolchildren sang in shrill chorus, and Klaus Heinrich drove away. On the anniversary of the War of Independence, he marched in front of the veterans. A grey-haired officer shouted in a voice which seemed hoarse with the smoke of gunpowder, Halt! Off hats! Eyes right! And they stood, with medals and crosses on their coats, the rough beavers in their hands, and looked up at him with bloodshot eyes like those of a hound as he walked by with a friendly look, and paused by one or two to ask where they had served, where they had been under fire. He attended the gymnastic display, graced the sports with his presence, and had the victors presented to him for a short conversation. The lithe athletic youths stood awkwardly before him, just after they had done the most astonishing feats, and Klaus Heinrich quickly strung together a few technical remarks, which he remembered from Herr Zotte, which he uttered with great fluency and while he hid his left hand. He attended the Five Houses Fishing Festival. He was present in his red-covered seat of honour at the Grimburg horse-races, and distributed the prizes. He accepted, too, the honorary presidency and patronage of the Associated Rifle Competition. He attended the prize-meeting of the privileged Grand Ducal Rifle Club. He responded cordially to the toast of welcome, in the words of the courier, by holding the silver cup for one moment to his lips and then, with heels clapped together, raising it towards the marksman. Thereupon he fired several shots at the target of honour, concerning which there was nothing said in the reports as to where they hit. Next ploughed through one and the same dialogue with three successive men about the advantages of rifle-firing, which, in the courier, was described as general conversation, and at last took leave with a hearty good luck, which evoked indescribable enthusiasm. This formula had been whispered to him at the last moment by Adjutant-General von Hünemann, who had made inquiries on the subject, for of course it would have had a bad effect, would have shattered the fair illusion of technical knowledge and serious enthusiasm if Klaus Heinrich had wished the marksman Excelsior and the Alpine Club bull's-eyes every time. As a general rule, he needed, in the exercise of his calling, a certain amount of technical knowledge, which he acquired for each succeeding occasion, with a view to applying it at the right moment and in suitable form. It consisted preponderatingly of the technical terms current in the different departments of human activity, 
as well as of historical dates, and before setting out on an official expedition, Klaus Heinrich used to work up the necessary information at home in the Hermitage with the help of pamphlets and oral instructions. When he, in the name of the Grand Duke, my most gracious brother, unveiled the statue of Johann Albrecht at Knüppelsdorf, he delivered on the scene of festivities, directly after a performance by the massed choirs of the Wreath of Harmony, a speech in which everything he had noted down about Knüppelsdorf was dragged in, and which produced the delightful impression everywhere that he had busied himself all his life with nothing so much as the historical vicissitudes of that hub of civilization. In the first place, Knüppelsdorf was a city, and Klaus Heinrich alluded to that three times, to the pride of the inhabitants. He went on to say that the city of Knüppelsdorf, as her historical past witnessed, had been connected by bonds of loyalty to the house of Grimburg for several centuries. As long ago as the fourteenth century, he said, Landgrave Heinrich V, the Rutensteiner, had signalled out Knüppelsdorf for special favour. He, the Rutensteiner, had lived in the Schloss built on the neighbouring Rutensteiner, whose girdle of proud towers and strong walls had sent its greeting to the country for miles round. Then he reminded his hearers how, through inheritance and marriage, Knüppelsdorf had at last come into the branch of the family to which his brother and he himself belonged. Heavy storms had in the course of years burst over Knüppelsdorf. Years of war, conflagration, and pestilence had visited it. Yet it had always risen again, and had always remained loyal to the house of its hereditary princes. And this characteristic, the Knüppelsdorf of today, proved that it possessed by raising a memorial to his, Klaus Heinrich's, beloved father, and it would be with unusual pleasure that he would report to his gracious brother the dazzling and hearty reception which he, as his representative, had here experienced. The veil fell, the massed choirs of the Wreath of Harmony again did their best, and Klaus Heinrich stood smiling under his theatrical tent, with a feeling of having exhausted his store of knowledge, happy in the certainty that nobody dare question him further, for he couldn't have said one blessed word more about Knüppelsdorf. How tiring his life was, how strenuous! Sometimes he felt as if he had constantly to keep upright, at a great strain to his elasticity, something which it was quite impossible, or possible only in favorable conditions, to keep upright. Sometimes his calling seemed to him a wretched and paltry one, although he liked it and gladly undertook every expedition required of him in his representative capacity. He traveled miles to an agricultural exhibition, traveled in a badly hung cart from Schloss Hermitage to the station, where the premier, the chief of police, and the directors of the railway company awaited him at the saloon carriage. He traveled for an hour and a half, the while carrying on, not without difficulty, a conversation with the grand ducal adjutants who had been attached to him, and the agricultural commissioner, assistant secretary Hekafeng, a severe and respectful man who also accompanied him. Then he reached the station of the city which had organized the agricultural exhibition. The mayor, with a chain over his shoulders, 
was awaiting him at the head of six or seven other official persons. The station was decorated with a quantity of fir branches and festoons. In the background stood the plaster busts of Albrecht and Klaus Heinrich in a frame of greenery. The public behind the barriers gave three cheers, and the bells pealed. The mayor read an address of welcome to Klaus Heinrich. He thanked him, he said, brandishing his top hat in his hand. He thanked him on behalf of the city for all the favor which Klaus Heinrich's brother and he himself showed them, and heartily wished him a long and blessed reign. He also begged the prince twice over graciously to crown the work which had prospered so famously under his patronage, and to open the agricultural exhibition. This mayor bore the title of agricultural counselor, a fact of which Klaus Heinrich had been apprised, and on account of which he addressed him thus three times in his answer. He said that he was delighted that the work of the agricultural exhibition had prospered so famously under his patronage. As a matter of fact, he had forgotten that he was a patron of this exhibition. He had come to put the finishing touch that day to the great work by opening the exhibition. Then he inquired as to four things— as to the economical circumstances of the city, the increase in the population in recent years, as to the labor market, although he had no very clear idea what the labor market was, and as to the price of victuals. When he heard that the price of victuals was high, he viewed the matter in a serious light, and that, of course, was all he could do. Nobody expected anything more of him, and it came as a comfort to everybody that he had viewed the high prices in a serious light. Then the mayor presented the city dignitaries to him, the higher district judge, a noble landed proprietor from the neighborhood, the rector, the two doctors, and a forwarding agent, and Klaus Heinrich addressed a question to each, thinking over, while the answer came, what he should say to the next. The local veterinary surgeon and the local inspector of stock-breeding were also present. Finally they climbed into carriages and drove, amid the cheers of the inhabitants, between fences of school-children, firemen, the patriotic societies, through the gaily decked city to the exhibition ground, not without being stopped once more at the gate by white-robed maidens with wreaths on their heads, one of whom, the mayor's daughter, handed to the prince in his carriage a bouquet with white satin streamers, and in lasting memory of the moment received one of those pretty and valuable gewgaws which Klaus Heinrich took with him on his journeys, a breastpin embedded, for a reason she could not guess, in velvet samet, which figured in the courier as a jewel mounted in gold. Tents, pavilions, and stands had been erected on the ground. Gaudy pennons fluttered on long rows of poles strung together with festoons. On a wooden platform hung with bunting, between drapings, festoons, and party-colored flagstaffs, Klaus Heinrich read the short opening speech, and then began the tour of inspection. There were cattle tethered to low crossbars, prize beasts of the best blood with smooth, round party-colored bodies, and numbered shields on their broad foreheads. There were horses, stamping and snuffing, heavy farm horses with Roman noses and bushes of hair round their pasterns, as well as slender, restless saddle-horses. 
There were naked, short-legged pigs, and a large selection of both ordinary and prize pigs. With dangling bellies, they grubbed up the ground with their snouts, while great blocks of woolly sheep filled the air with a confused chorus of bass and treble. There were ear-splitting exhibits of poultry, cocks and hens of every kind, from the big Brahmaputra to the copper-colored bantam, ducks and pigeons of all sorts, eggs and fodder, both fresh and artificially preserved. There were exhibits of agricultural produce, grain of all sorts, beets and clover, potatoes, peas and flax, vegetables too, both fresh and dried, raw and preserved fruit, berries, marmalade and syrups. Lastly, there were exhibits of agricultural implements and machines, displayed by several technical firms, provided with everything of service to agriculture, from the hand-plough to the great black-funneled motors, looking like elephants in their stall, from the simplest and most intelligible objects to those which consisted of a maze of wheels, chains, rods, cylinder, arms, and teeth, a world an entire overpowering world of ingenious utility. Klaus Heinrich looked at everything. He walked, with his sword hilt on his forearm, down the rows of animals, cages, sacks, tubs, glasses, and implements. The dignitary at his side pointed with his white-gloved hand to this and that, venturing on a remark from time to time, and Klaus Heinrich acted up to his calling. He expressed in words his appreciation of all he saw, stopped from time to time, and engaged the exhibitors of the animals in conversation, inquired in an affable way into their circumstances, and put questions to the country people whose answers entailed a scratching behind their ears. And as he walked, he bowed his thanks on both sides for the homage of the population which lined his path. The people had collected most thickly at the exit, where the carriages were waiting, in order to watch him drive off. A way was kept free for him, a straight passage to the step of his landau, and he walked quickly down it, bowing continuously with his hand to his helmet, alone and formally separated from all those men who, in honoring him, were cheering their own archetype, their standard, and of whose lives, work, and ability he was the splendid representative, though not participator. With a light and free step he mounted the carriage, settled himself artistically so that he at once assumed a perfectly graceful and self-possessed pose, and drove, saluting as he went, to the clubhouse where luncheon was prepared. During luncheon, indeed directly after the second course, the district judge proposed the health of the Grand Duke and the Prince, whereupon Klaus Heinrich at once rose to drink to the welfare of the county and the city. After the luncheon, however, he retired to the room which the mayor had put at his disposal in his official residence, and lay down on the bed for an hour, for the exercise of his calling exhausted him in a strange degree, and that afternoon he was due not only to visit in that city the church, the school, and various factories, especially Benke Brothers' cheese factory, and to express high satisfaction with everything, but also to extend his journey and visit a scene of disaster, a burnt-out village, in order to express to the villagers his brothers and his own sympathy, and to cheer the afflicted by his exalted presence. 
When he got back to the Hermitage, to his soberly furnished empire room, he read the newspaper accounts of his expeditions. Then Privy Councillor Schustermann of the Press Bureau, which was under the Home Secretary, appeared in the Hermitage, and brought the extracts from the papers, cleanly pasted on white sheets, dated and labelled with the name of the paper. And Klaus Heinrich read about the impression he had produced, read about his personal graciousness and highness, read that he had acquitted himself nobly and taken the hearts of young and old by storm, that he had raised the minds of the people out of the ruck of every day and filled them with gladness and affection. And then he gave free audiences in the old Schloss as it had been arranged. The custom of free audiences had been introduced by a well-meaning ancestor of Albrecht II, and the people clung to it. Once every week, Albrecht, or Klaus in his place, was accessible to everybody. Whether the petitioner was a man of rank or not, whether the subject of his petitions were of a public or personal nature, he had only to give in his name to Herr von Bühl, or even the aide-de-camp on duty, and he was given an opportunity of bringing his matter to notice in the highest quarters. Indeed, an admirable custom, for it meant that the petitioner did not have to go round by way of written application with the dismal prospect of his petition disappearing forever into a pigeonhole, but had the happy assurance that his application would go straight to the most exalted quarters. It must be admitted that the most exalted quarters, Klaus Heinrich at this time, naturally were not in a position to go into the matter, to scrutinize it seriously and to come to a decision upon it, but that they handed the matter on to the pigeonholes in which it disappeared. But the custom was none the less helpful, though not in the sense of matter-of-fact utility. The citizen, the petitioner, came to Herr von Bühl with the request to be received, and a day and hour were fixed for him. With glad embarrassment he saw the day draw near, worked up in his own mind the sentences in which he intended to explain his business, had his frock-coat and his hat ironed, put on his best shirt, and generally made himself ready. But in reality these solemn interviews were well calculated to turn the petitioner's thoughts away from the gross material end in view, and to make the reception itself seem to him the main point the essential object of his excited anticipation. The hour came, and the citizen took, what he never otherwise took, a cab, in order not to dirty his clean boots. He drove between the lions at the Albrechtstor, and the sentries as well as the stalwart doorkeeper gave him free passage. He landed in the courtyard at the colonnade in front of the weather-beaten entrance, and was at once admitted by a lackey in a brown coat and sand-colored gaiters to an anteroom on the ground floor to the left, in one corner of which was a stand of colors, and where a number of other supplicants, talking in low whispers, waited in a state of thoughtful tension for their reception. The aide-de-camp, holding a list of those with appointments, went backwards and forwards, and took the next on the list to one side, to instruct him in a low voice how to behave. End of section 11